Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to be able to introduce this podcast. In it, we're going to be discussing the paper, Reported Outcomes of Lower Limb Orthopedic Surgery in Children and Adolescents with Cerebral Palsy, a mapping review by Wilson and colleagues in the September 2014 issue. It's going to be discussed by Dr. Nicola Wilson, who's an orthopedic surgeon at the Starship Hospital, Auckland, New Zealand, and by Mr. Tim Theologis, who's an orthopedic surgeon at the Oxford University Hospital NHS Trust, Oxford, UK. Please can we start with you, Nicola, to outline the paper in its background. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss the paper. The goal of the paper was to identify and quantify the outcome measures used to assess lower limb orthopaedic surgery in children with cerebral palsy. We chose to look at the decade before and after the introduction of the International Classification of Functioning, Disability and Health. We chose a mapping review methodology to itemise and characterise research outcomes in the literature and to identify gaps. From the literature search done in November 2011, 540 papers were appraised to look for English papers published in peer-reviewed journal that were primary studies reporting one or more outcome measures that assess the results of lower limb orthopaedic surgery in ambulatory children and adolescents with cerebral palsy aged 0 to 20. For this study, we defined surgery as operations that focused on alignment or gait improvement in the lower limbs, thus excluding papers which looked at surgery carried out for hip dysplasia. In total, 229 papers were included. To look at the impact of the introduction of the International Classification of Functioning, Disability and Health, we compared papers before 2001 to those after. Nearly three-quarters of the papers were published after 2001, and 80% of all papers were retrospective. Patients were described most commonly by topography, and since the first use of the GMSCS to classify patients in the studies, we'd identified it as being used in 37%. 32 outcome measures were identified that it had at least one published paper outlining their psychometric properties. Of these, 20 outcome measures reflected impairment of body structure and function, and they were used 537 times and made up 91% of total reported outcomes. Clinical examination and gait analysis were the two most frequently used. 10 outcome measures assessed activity and participation, and these were used 52 times and made up only 9% of total usage. Two measures looked at quality of life. I would like to congratulate Dr. Wilson for this excellent and much-needed piece of work which I enjoyed reading. I would like to begin by asking Dr. Wilson to comment on the ICF, the three domains of impairment, activity and participation, and how important it is to consider all these three domains whilst assessing children with cerebral palsy, particularly after multi-level surgery. I think it is really important to, as you say, to think about why we'd be looking at across the three ICF domains. I think firstly, it's sort of important to say frequency of use of outcomes, looking at impairment and body structure and function probably reflects the usage of these measures in everyday clinical practice because these are the measures that are often recorded in clinical records and accessible retrospectively. And as I've previously mentioned, 80% of studies were in this group. There's often also an assumption that improvement in body structure and function outcomes are reflected in activity and participation or patient satisfaction. But we do know that some operations, like ankle arthrodesis, this is shown to be correct. So improved technical precision with the position does improve functional results. But some other surgeries, such as scoliosis, this has not been the case. Uh, we know that the choice of outcome measure for a study does depend on a particular question being asked. And for surgery, and in particular the multi-level surgery, there's often the general question of has the patient improved? But what is improvement? And I think that's quite hard to define and really depends on whom you ask. Anecdotally, I find that patients and their families say, well, look, is my child going to be able to walk better? Will they be able to do more? 
and Vargas Adams has done some really interesting work looking at the expectations of interventions, both from medical professionals, family and the child perspective. And whilst there was overlap between these groups, there was also differences and their range of answers was right across the ICF spectrum. So I think it really did, to me, highlight the need to address each of these when we're designing studies and so that we really can help patients and their families understand how multi-level surgery, which is a significant investment for the patient and their family, is going to change what they can do. You've raised the point that patient and family perception can affect the perception of the outcome as well. I agree that this is an important point, but uh, does that have anything to do with the domains of activity and participation of the ICF? Does it affect those domains, or are they kind of interacting? I think the interaction is probably, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I would have said that interaction is the most likely uh, and that there is overlap. We do know that parental satisfaction is um, on sort of different things to what medical professionals will be looking at and often is more in those activity and participation domains, although some of them are in more body structure and function, things like, you know, what does a surgical scar look like, um, how long is it, those kind of things. But really what their child can do frequently, anecdotally again, they might ask, you know, will my child be able to walk afterwards? And that is something different to that body structure and function domain. Yes, and that brings me naturally to my next question, which is some of the functional outcome measures that we do use include some elements of scoring activity. For example, mm -hmm. the functional assessment questionnaire developed by the uh, Gillette Institute contains questions about ability to participate in some activities. So do you think that these are sufficient or should we be using outcomes that specifically score activity and participation? No, that's a good question. As you point out, the Gillette FAQ does sort of cross multiple domains. In our paper, we actually did put it in the activity and participation domain. And so they look at part of the activity domain. I think many of the outcome measures do cross and overlap domains, and that's one of the difficulties when you're trying to assign them to only one of the ICF domains. I think for a lot of the uh, outcome measures, they do fit across several. So do you think that in future we should be using a multitude of outcome measures, each one addressing each domain, or should we be developing outcome measures that cover all three domains, or what would be the other way forward? I think you raised um, very good points there. I am not aware of any sort of outcome measures, I'm sure you're not, that covers all the three domains, and I think that would be very difficult perhaps to develop. There's work published in the European Journal of Neurology in 2013, and they suggested that the GMFM, Paediatric Evaluation of Disability Inventory, plus the Paediatric Outcomes Data Collection Instrument and the Cerebral Palsy Quality of Life Questionnaire covered most of the components. And so I think the way forward is probably more looking at a suite of outcome measures. There is, you know, this need to have measures across the ICF, not just when looking at the outcomes of orthopaedic surgery. Our finding that relatively few outcome measures looked at activity and participation is similar to other studies in children with cerebral palsy, such as aquatic exercise program, aerobic exercise interventions, physical therapy, and botulinum toxin A. So I think this development of comprehensive outcome measures is multidisciplinary, 
And I think it really does go back uh, to what I was saying at the start and choosing outcome measures. You still have to think what are you trying to define as the outcome and then you know, using the specific outcome measures to try and address the question. And I think in designing more prospective studies, it will naturally lead to more use across the ICF domain. So you won't be relying so much on retrospective collection of data, which is predominantly body structure and function. So the, the aim of uh, treatment in multilevel surgery is not always the same. And it may be that choosing goal attainment outcomes mm-hmm. may be a, a way of approaching. And I know that the, the group in Melbourne have, have done that to a certain extent in other forms of treatment in children with cerebral palsy. Would that be a, a reasonable way forward? So, for example, doing a, a derotation or steotomy on a child with an aplegia and correcting their foot deformity may not alter particularly their ability to participate in, in activities and uh, may not affect significantly the functional score. But in terms of the mm. quality of the, their walking and their whole their own perception and satisfaction, they, they may be very happy with the outcome of the, the operation. On the other hand, GMFCS3 bilateral involvement child with cerebral palsy who undergoes multi-level surgery may, for example, improve to, to that extent that they go a step up on the GMFCS uh, mm-hmm. classification, at least for, for a while, but um, they may not improve that significantly in activity and participation. Again, so both of these patients may be very happy with the outcome of the surgery, mm-hmm. but um, may not score any differently in activity and participation. And of course, there are other situations where patients may improve in activity and participation but may not be happy for other reasons because some complication occurred or... Yes. So, so I'm just wondering whether a, a way of assessing would be to uh, define a goal and aim before the, the treatment and agreed between the surgeon and the patient and family. A way of measuring this after the, the operation may be the way forward. We didn't look at the sort of goal attainment aspect as part of this paper, but I think it raises a really good sort of point, and that is that conversation with families before the surgery and actually setting joint goals so that there is a good expectation of what is likely to be achieved. Um, as you point out, the child who's in towing and you know ends up walking straighter but may not change any score or outcome measure in activity and participation, they are likely to have a successful operation if they wanted a straighter walking or foot progression axis when they're walking. I think one of the difficulties is it, it may be that um, orthopaedic surgery doesn't necessarily improve activity and participation. I don't think we know that because I don't know if we have enough validated outcome measures in those domains. But that doesn't make it, as you say, an operation that's not beneficial to the patient. It's more that the patient then knows and their family that it's not going to change how much they can do in the community. But there's still maybe very good reasons to do it. Once again, we didn't really touch on the paper, but I think it is very interesting. And something that we think about is, is changing children's lower leg alignment. Does that improve their long-term longevity of joints? And is that a reason to do multi-level surgery, and that's something we may not be able to answer because we can't look into the future, but it's something to discuss with families, and I don't think it's necessarily bad to have a conversation and say, look, we don't know, and all the evidence doesn't say that activity and participation is improved, but this is another reason 
you know, what you might get out of the operation. When I consult patients and families before multilevel surgery, I I do tell them exactly the same thing, that we don't really know in what percentage of patients, if any, the activity and participation improve. And what we, we do have evidence on is that the quality of their gait, as measured by the gait analysis, is improving significantly, and that mm. motor function level, as measured by the GMFM, is staying mm. the same or, or improving slightly. So I think that this is all we have as evidence in, uh, in cerebral palsy. And you, you raised a very good point on whether their gait deviations might be leading to uh, a multitude of orthopedic problems later on in, in life. And I don't know if you, you practice only on children or you see adults in your practice. So I see patients as older adults through the gait lab that aren't involved in their surgery at all. Yes, so certainly a number of uh, adult patients with diplegia, for example, come back in their 40s or 50s with arthritis and joints and so on. And, but we don't really know what percentage of, of their mm. population is, uh, is coming back and w- what their risk is for developing these problems. So there's quite a lot more work that needs to be done in, in those fields, isn't there? Yes, yeah. Unfortunately, these things often raise more questions <laughs> than give answers. Yes, so my final question was going to be, how do you see developing and and particularly validating comprehensive outcome measures for for this form of treatment? I I wonder if at the end of the the paper you've crystallized the plan in your your mind as to how to go about developing these validated comprehensive outcome measures. I guess in my own mind, sort of from the paper, I haven't really crystallised how to uh, validate it. I think one of the things that can be taken away is there are some good activity and participation scores that are available and could be used more in papers. You know, things like the FMS, PODSI, you know, they're well uh, validated but just haven't been used much up to 2011. I wonder with the advent of more prospective studies, some of these measures that have already been published and are validated will be used more and they will be useful tools and make comparison between papers better. I think um, as a group of clinicians treating children with cerebral palsy, that will be the way forward for looking at these validated outcome measures because I think it's not just um, confined to orthopaedic surgery that activity and participation outcome measures are being used less frequently. Yes, I I had in mind something like what the uh, Toronto group developed for the treatment of hip dislocation in cerebral palsy, Mm -hmm. the the CP child. You've come across that? Yes, I have, yeah. So this this is the kind of comprehensive and validated measure that I had in mind, which Mm -hmm. encompasses all three domains. It takes into account scoring of of x-rays. Care is perception of the the child or uh, level of pain or function. Uh, and my question really had something like this in mind, developing an equivalent outcome measure that would specifically address the issue of multilevel surgery in cerebral palsy. But of course, that you're suggesting using the already existing and validated more generic uh, measures in this in this field. And I'm just wondering what is the, the best choice between the two. I, I'm not I'm not really sure whether. Yeah it is best to to measure the outcome with something which is with a tool which is specifically designed for the particular condition and the particular mm-hmm. form of treatment uh, is that more likely to be sensitive in measuring 
what we're actually trying to do in, in this particular population, or should we be using something that already exists and is more generic? It's an impossible question for answer. I think I'm sorry about that. No, no. I guess one of um, the things about it is, and just off the top of my head, is multi-level surgeries. There's so many variations of it. And um, even when I was trying to go back through these papers, there was so little uh, description in the papers of what multi-level surgery was. I couldn't define it like McKinley had from the Melbourne group. And so I guess probably even going back and trying to define multi-level surgery moving forward and what would you include and then the differences in all the children. It, I mean, it would be great to have one measure that you use for everyone. I'm just not sure whether it would be possible given the diversity of yes. the group. I don't really know what the um, uh, what, what the answer to that question is. I, I just I don't know whether we should be really developing outcome measures for every kind of treatment that we do or we mm. should be using more generic validated tools. And if if the treatment is really making a difference to activity or participation, that should show on these measures. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Uh, many thanks indeed to Dr. Nicola Wilson and Mr. Tim Theologis. I thought that was fascinating and raised very important clinical points. Just to remind listeners, the article is Reported Outcomes of Lower Limb Orthopaedic Surgery in Children and Adolescents with Cerebral Palsy, a mapping review by Wilson and colleagues in the September 2014 issue. So thanks for the opportunity to discuss this paper. The goal of the paper was to identify and quantify the outcome measures used to assess lower limb orthopaedic surgery in children with cerebral palsy. We chose to look at the decade before and after the introduction of the International Classification of Functioning, Disability and Health. Uh, we chose a mapping review methodology to itemise and characterise research outcomes in the literature and to identify gaps. From the literature search done in November 2011, 540 papers were appraised to look for English papers published in peer-reviewed journal that were primary studies reporting one or more outcome measures that assess the results of lower limb orthopaedic surgery in ambulatory children and adolescents with cerebral palsy aged 0 to 20. For this study, we defined surgery as operations that focused on alignment or gait improvement in the lower limbs, thus excluding papers which looked at surgery carried out for hip dysplasia. In total, 229 papers were included. To look at the impact of the introduction of the International Classification of Functioning, Disability and Health, we compared papers before 2001 to those after. Nearly three-quarters of the papers were published after 2001, and 80% of all papers were retrospective. Patients were described most commonly by topography, and since the first use of the GMSCS to classify patients in the studies, we'd identified it as being used in 37%. 32 outcome measures were identified that had at least one published paper outlining their psychometric properties. Of these, 20 outcome measures reflected impairment of body structure and function, and they were used 537 times and made up 91% of total reported outcomes. Clinical examination and gait analysis were the two most frequently used. 10 outcome measures assessed activity and participation, and these were used 52 times and made up only 9% of total usage. Two measures looked at quality of life.